The Great Adventure, what a song. That song promises us that if we lay it all aside, give it all up, and follow after the call of God upon our lives, we will have a life like no other. There's a season of my life that I hated that song. I didn't think its promises were true. Back in the early 90s, I married my wife, and we, had, we were both recent graduates of the university. We both uh, went to nursing home administrator school and got our license, and we both were career-minded and were running a nursing home. Things were looking good. We were making good money. We were, uh, had plans to build a house, already had the architect lined it up. We were excited about what the future had to hold, but there was a problem. We both kept having this increasing nagging that God was telling us, give it all up. I've got different plans for you. We both felt like God was calling us into full-time ministry, but we were resisting. It was hard to, to take the leap. I, I liken to it jumping into Lake Michigan. You know how cold the water is. You know the edge of the boat and you're like, you know you're gonna be all right. And you know once you get over that initial sting uh, that everything's gonna be fine, but it's just making yourself do it. I hate that feeling. Finally, after five years, the calling was so strong. We said, yeah, we, let's just do this. So we did, we made the plunge. I remember listening to that song and I was like, wow, wow, it's the great adventure. We're gonna blaze new trails. God's got a great life for us, yes. He's gonna reward us for our sacrifices. So we sold our house. We, it was just the two of us at the time. We moved down to Dallas, Texas and enrolled in Dallas Theological Seminary. Our years at Dallas were rigorous and difficult, but keeping our eyes focused on the fact that God had so clearly called us, kept us going. By my junior year, my peers, uh, almost all of them knew what they were gonna do, what God was calling them to. Some were gonna be senior pastors, some were gonna be missionaries, some were gonna go into youth ministry, parachurch ministry. But Kathy and I, it was a bit discouraging, but we just didn't really have a good sense of what God was preparing us for. And I'd written a paper in my historical theology class that my professors really liked. It was on a guy named St. Anselm in medieval history. And one day the professor came to me and said, Steve, this paper's really good. And Oxford University is calling for people to submit papers in this time period. And then they're gonna offer so many to come over and actually spend eight weeks over there to delve further into the topic. I didn't think much about it. I discussed it with my wife. By that time, we had a two-year-old and my wife was seven, seven months pregnant. But she said, Steve, if you, if, you, if you get accepted, if you get picked, go, we'll be fine. So I did. I submitted my paper and to my utter shock, it got picked. This was the great adventure. It was hard leaving my family, but I went over to Oxford for eight weeks and it just kept getting better and better. I remember the day before I left, the professor that I was assigned to me said, Steve, you really have a talent for this. If you're interested in doing doctoral work after you finish your master's at Dallas, I'll write you a reference. Yes, man, how could it get any better? The great adventure, right? I remember getting on the plane and flying home thinking, wow, God, you are awesome. Your word is true. It is a, a life like no other. That year I finished up at Dallas and I applied to the doctoral program at Oxford with his, the professor's recommendation. I got accepted. 
moved my family in the summer of 02 to Oxford University. It didn't take me long to realize Oxford's quite a bit different than Dallas. <laughs> the Christian lens that uh, everybody undertook their studies at Dallas was, was, was not so at Oxford. In fact, in many ways, they were antagonistic to Christianity. And I knew that my work wasn't being nearly as appreciated as much uh, at Oxford as it was Dallas, but I had no idea how much disdain it was until I got a letter. And the letter said, Dear Mr. Gibson, we regret to inform you that while you've done enough work to receive a master's degree, you are no longer being considered a PhD candidate. Your studies at Oxford are over. I can't tell you all the emotions that I was being flooded with. I mean, it was completely by surprise. I mean, I was getting good grades on my tests. I was getting good marks on my papers. I, it was just out of the blue. What? I was numb. I was like, God, what's going on? It felt like that God had, I was riding my horse down that trail and all of a sudden God just put a brick wall up and I ran right into it. Make a long story shorter, I packed my family up and we moved back to, to Dayton. Ironically enough, the guy I had hired in my position at the nursing home, he had uh, received an offer for a much bigger home and he accepted that and uh, I took my old job back again. After five and a half years, after making the plunge, after doing it all, after taking God on his word, I found myself back at square one working at the nursing home, thinking, God, was the five and a half years a waste? And, and thousands upon thousands of dollars. I remember my only hope, though, was I was thinking, man, I'm going to be a really good layman. Maybe that's what God wanted me to do, be a really good layman. The church that we uh, were called to go to, I decided I'm going to meet with the pastor. I'm going to tell him my credentials. I'm going to tell him, you know, I got a master's from Oxford, master's from DTS. I had some ministry experience while I was doing my seminary. I met with him for lunch and told him, and I was thinking, you know, he'd put me in some type of leadership, he'd maybe have me teach something, maybe even have me preach on Sunday morning, I didn't know, and he said, well, let's start by you joining the set up and tear down team. <laughs> this, this was a church plant, it was a, a rather large church plant, but they still met in the gymnasium of the YMCA, and every week they would, uh, we would set up chairs and tear them down, and I was a bit shocked, but I thought, you know what, you know, I was just holding on to every last hope I could, I, I thought, couple of weeks he'll come looking for me. <laughs> well, I don't know if he forgot me or what, but he didn't. Three years setting up chairs and tearing them down. I, I often refer to that, those three years as the darkest time in my life. A time where I, I was mad at God. A time where I felt like God had led me down a dead end road. I was disappointed with God. I later found out that many Christians God has go through the seasons of life and it's called the dark night of the soul. A time where God is not speaking like he used to. A time where you're going through, something's happened and you're going through a season of life of depression uh, and God's not making any sense out of it for you. My story's trite compared to many who have been catapulted into this season of life. D.A. Carson writes concerning the dark night of the soul, he writes, 
Grief and pain always catch us unaware. We know we are not immune, but there is a suppressed hope that pretends we are. And when our child dies or our spouse, when we see a loved one wasting away from a painful disease, or observe a brilliant and courteous mind disintegrating before our eyes, when we ourselves suddenly face the most appalling pain or incapacity with no prospect of relief, then our pretensions rush forward in another form. Why is God doing this? Our whole being cries out that it is unfair of him, that our grief and pain are disproportionate to our sin, that we have been abandoned. Have you ever felt disappointment with God? Have you ever went through a season of life where if you were honest with yourself, you'd have to say that the excitement you once had about life, the dreams that you want, once had about life, that instead of experiencing the realization of those dreams, you've had to learn to put to death those dreams. And if you were honest with yourself, if you dug a little deeper, would you have to say that your disappointment is with God as well? A God who claims that if you leave it all behind, a God who claims that if you devote your life to him, that you will experience joy unspeakable, an abundant life, a life like no other. I was having lunch with uh, a gentleman, a longtime member of the church here a couple weeks ago, and he's been going through a dark season in his life. Five years ago, uh, his wife started losing her memory. At first, they just chalked it up to you know, old age, but she wasn't that old. She's only in her early 60s. And it became worse and worse until eventually they, uh, they took her to the doctor and took tests, and the tests revealed that she has an aggressive form of dementia, Alzheimer's. And the doctor said, I'm sorry, but it's, it's only going to get worse and quickly. My friend has watched his wife literally lose her mind over the past five years to the point that at times she doesn't even recognize who he is. What pain, what agony. He talked about how that they had uh, retirement plans and how that they were going to travel the world and how they'd save money and they were excited about that, all dashed with one sentence from a doctor. He said he was in service a few weeks ago when Jim was talking about, hey, if you stick close to God, if you do God's will, if your ways are blameless, God's going to honor you, God's going to bless you. And he said he kept throughout the message thinking, God, what about me? Is there something that I've done to cause my wife to get this terrible disease? Is there something that I've done to cause this disease to plague my family? Is there something my wife did? What, what is it? Today, I want to answer the question for you. How should a Christian respond when they're disappointed with God? How should a Christian respond when they're disappointed with God? My text is Psalms 13. It's page 387 in the Pew Bibles. David has found himself in a situation where he feels like God is failing him. The text doesn't tell us exactly who or what, but it says he has an enemy. Now, most likely, his enemy is either Saul or Absalom. Absalom. If you remember this past year in studying the life of David, there were two times in his life uh, that people he loved had an army after him, and they're trying to kill him. So there's a good chance that he's on the run from either Saul or Absalom. 
and he doesn't feel like that God is with him. He writes in verse one, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? One of the most difficult things as Christians that we go through, again, is a period of time when God isn't speaking to us. He may be speaking and letting us know he's in other areas, but there's something in our life, there's an area, there's a season we're going through, and he's not making sense of it, and he's, he's not communicating to us. David feels like he's in this season, that he's in a season where his enemy's about to overtake him, and God's not responding. God's not giving him the confidence that he's going through it with him. And he asks, how long, O Lord? How long will it be like this? But I want you to notice, David's not really asking a question as much as he's making a statement. I mean, it's not as if David is thinking, God, wanting God to say, well, tomorrow at noon, I'll start talking. No. David is complaining to God. David's not averse to complaining to God. In fact, in Psalm 64, 1, David says, listen to me, God, when I complain. And David's saying, God, I'm going through a situation in my life, and it feels like you don't care. It feels like that perhaps you're not even aware. And he's wrestling with God, and he's asking these questions. My friend, he knows that he didn't do anything to cause his wife's Alzheimer's. He knows that. He knows that his wife didn't do anything. But in asking the question, he's trying to get God to make sense of it all. When I was in my three years of darkness, I would ask God, God, make sense of this. Make sense of the last five and a half years. Make sense of the darkness that I'm going through, through now. Just talk to me. Just tell me how my pain now fits into your plan for good for me. Tell me but he wouldn't. You know Elizabeth Elliot, she's been mentioned in service before her and her husband in the early 50s, missionaries, they moved down to Ecuador to witness, be a light for Jesus, to share the love of Christ to the indigenous people. Not long after they arrived, her husband Jim was speared to death, killed, leaving Elizabeth and their baby daughter. She talks about the questions that were going on in her mind. She says, what exactly was going on? Where was I to turn? To God? Is he God or is he not? Does he love me or does he not? Am I adrift in chaos? Is the word of God even true? David's honest with God. He's honest with God about his complaints and now he's gonna get honest with God about his thought life, verse two, he says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? David too is battling in the mind and these things that he knows are not true. Things that we sometimes entertain, is Christianity even real? Is, does God really love me? Is he really all powerful? Is there order to this world? Is there a purpose for my life? questions that we know the answers to, but our feelings are screaming just the opposite. And then we come to our senses or come to realize, God, you are good. 
and we're sorrowful that we thought those thoughts. Like David, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and have sorrow in my heart? But I want you to notice again, he's not asking a question as much as he's making a statement. What's he saying? He's asking God how long he has to think these negative thoughts. He's blaming God. He's saying, God, the reason why I'm thinking this way, the reason why that I'm having these thoughts plague my mind is because you're not filling my head with anything. It's your fault. Would you please tell me when you're gonna start talking to me so I don't have to fill my own head with nonsense? That's bold. That's raw. David's disappointed with God and his response to God is to be honest with God about how it feels. Why don't we do this? What's so uncomfortable about this? I mean, when I'm studying this passage and I'm reading the commentaries and I'm realizing how honest and how raw David's getting, I'm, I'm getting uncomfortable myself. I mean, we can share with God how we feel in the good times. Things are going really good. God's blessing us. He's showing up. He's speaking to us. He's telling us how A plus B equals C in our life. And we've got a bright future. And Lord, we can just open up and just pour out the praises and tell God how wonderful he is. But you let God step back a little bit. You let him stop the blessings from flowing so much. And we get timid, don't we, with our feelings. Why is that? Because it feels irreverent, doesn't it? It feels disrespectful. I remember thinking all these things going through those three years. I remember thinking, God, why are you really in my life? Have I ever heard from you before? But never bringing myself to being able to communicate with God and to express my feelings with him with fear that it would appear that I was shaking my hand at God. But David's not shaking his hand at God. David's getting real with God. David's telling God his emotions and his feelings at the time. When a Christian faces times of being disappointed with God, they should be honest with God. And the first way to be honest with God is to tell God how you feel. But David doesn't stop there. Verse 3. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes. These are imperatives. These are questions, I mean, uh, commands. And notice, David's not saying, now God, if it be your will. Now God, you know, I know, you know what's best. No, David's in desperation. He doesn't have time for God talk. There's no time for Christianese. He's busting down the throne room door and he's running into the throne room and he's saying, God, where are you? Do you know what's going on down here? Could you please explain to me how this fits in with your vision for me to be king? 
my enemy. They're winning, God. Help me. Answer me. Mark Buchanan is the pastor of New Life Church in Duncan, British Columbia. He went through a dark time in his life when a friend of his died of a brain tumor. He writes, I thought I needed therapy or drugs or a career change. I wasn't entirely clear what I believed. I kept preaching, kept leading, but some days I could barely rouse myself. I tried and tried to get out of it until I realized that there was nothing doing except going through it. I was in winter. This became the shape of my own prayers in winter. I told God exactly how I felt, no holds barred, but didn't stop talking to him. And I kept reminding him bluntly of what he could and should do. These prayers were raw and real. They were their own acts of faith. When facing times of disappointment with God, David tells God how he feels. And then he tells God boldly what he wants him to do for him. Perhaps he even gets more bold with the last remaining verses where he talks about what the consequences are if God doesn't answer versus if he does. Picking up at the end of verse three there. If you don't answer my prayer, Lord, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Now, key to understanding what David's doing here is that word at the beginning of verse 5, the word but. Anytime you have that word, you want to ask yourself, what's being contrasted? Because the writer is contrasting what he said before it with what he says after it. So let's look again quickly Before it, he says, if you don't answer my prayer, I'm going to die. My enemy is going to say, ha, I, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice that your servant's dead. But I trust in your unfailing love. And my heart rejoices in anticipation of your salvation. And if you answer my prayer, God, I'm going to write you another song. And this time, it's going to be praise and adoration. The English doesn't serve us well in verse 6 where it says, I will sing. In the Hebrew, it literally says, it denotes that David isn't saying that he will currently sing in the middle of his crisis. He's telling God at a future time, when he can look back and see how God saved him, he will write him another psalm. And this time, that psalm's not gonna be complaining. That psalm's not gonna be a song that uh, talks about uh, what devastation he's experiencing. No, this psalm, Lord's gonna give you credit. David's saying, which way do you want it, God? Do you want my enemy who could care less about you? They could care a thing about you or your ways. Do you want them to win and they get the glory and they glory among themselves and they rejoice in their own powers? Or God, do you want to answer my prayer and you get the glory 
because I'm going to give you all the glory if you answer my prayers. He's shooting straight with God. He's telling God what he'll do when he answers his prayer. He's being honest with God. You see, David, he can't praise him right then because he hasn't seen the victory. He may be able to praise him about other things, but he's in, he's in devastation. You have to understand the enemy's coming. His life's at stake, and he's being honest with God. He's saying, I don't have that song for you right now, but you answer me, and I'll sure sing it for you as loud as you want it sung. You say, well, I thought we were supposed to praise God at all times. I thought we were supposed to have the praise of God on our lips continuously. God wants people to praise him in spirit and in. He's not interested in our lip service. He wants us to praise him from sincere, honest hearts. David feels disappointed with God, and as a result, he tells God exactly how he feels. And he tells God what he wants him to do for him. And he tells God how he'll give him all the credit once he does. He shoots straight with God. Let me talk about why. What's the consequence if we're not honest with God? What's the consequence? When I first got married, one of the first things I had to realize was that my wife wanted to talk. And I don't mean she didn't want me to just say words. She wanted to know how I felt. And it wasn't good enough to tell her, my day at work went fine, honey. She wanted to know how I felt about my day at work going fine, honey. What was she after? Intimacy. She was after intimacy. Intimacy requires honesty. Can you imagine not being able to talk with your spouse about everything? Can you imagine not being able to tell them even the negative thoughts you're having? I had a young man in my office a few weeks ago, and he's going through a time in his life, and I said to him, I said, have you ever felt angry with God? He said, yep. I said, have you ever felt like God was partly to blame for the situation you're in? Yeah. Ever told him? No. Nope. I said, well, guess what? He already knows. And he wants you to talk to him about it. The book of Hosea tells us that God wants to be our lover. Lovers talk. Lovers are intimate. They share things, they share their disappointments, they share their struggles. Even when those disappointments are in regards to each other, they talk it out. And as a result, they grow in intimacy. God's after intimacy. Go back with me to the book of Genesis. Before the fall, Adam and Eve, they're walking around naked. There's nothing between them and God. They're intimate, they're relating to each other with nothing in between, they're transparent with God. Sin enters in, God comes looking for him one day and he says, where are you? 
They said, we're behind the bush. He's like, why are you behind the bush? I said, well, we're naked. Who told you you were naked? Intimacy was severed. A holy God could no longer relate with imperfect man. Sin had entered in. They could no longer be transparent with one another. But God wouldn't have that. He wasn't interested in relating with his beloved creation between a bush. So he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin that we could be back in right relationship with him. I love that line. I love that line in Dr. Lockridge's video that we saw earlier where he says, you can't get him out of your mind, you, you can't get him off your hands, you can't outlive him and you can't live without him. But can I say this morning, I know it's absolutely scandalous, but the Bible says that God feels the exact same way about you. You're always in his mind. And he did not ask his son Jesus to step off his throne, to enter into this sinful world, to live 33 years being spit upon, mocked, to ultimately be crucified on a cross and endure an agony in order that he could relate to you behind a bush. God wants you to come out from behind the cliches of Christian ease and God talk, and he wants you to get real with him. God wants intimacy with you. When I was a teenager, I got in trouble with some boys and I lied to my parents so they wouldn't find out. And as, as with all lies, the truth eventually came out and it rocked my mom. It rocked her emotionally and to the point that she, she wouldn't even speak to me for a week. Now my mom's watching this morning and I want her to know that it's the best thing she could have ever done for me because it, it rocked my world. And after about a week, I went to her and I said, Mom, are you ever going to forgive me? And she said, Stephen, it's, it's not about forgiveness. I'm not nearly as hurt with what you did as by the fact that you didn't feel like you could tell me the truth. She said, I thought we had the type of relationship that you could share everything with me, even the junk. She said, realizing that we don't have that type of relationship hurts. I'm hurt. If there's anything you get out of this message today, I want you to leave realizing that God's hurt when we're not really willing to be real with him. When we don't feel secure enough in our relationship with him to talk to him about how we feel, even when those feelings are not positive. Because the process creates intimacy. 
That's what Jesus did. Jesus expressed his own disappointment with the Father when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This morning, there's an invitation for you to approach the throne boldly. When Christians feel disappointed with God, the first thing they should do is tell God how they feel. Second thing they should do is tell him what they want him to do for him. And the third thing is that they should tell him the praise that will spring forth once he does. David does, and so should we. Let's pray. Father God, we know you're good. We know you're an awesome God. And we know you're in control of all things and there's no end to your faithfulness or your love. We know this, God. We've experienced your grace and mercy enough to know that you truly are who you say you are. But there are times, God, when what we know and what we feel don't match up. And Father, there are people here this morning that they're going through a rough time. And if they were really honest with themselves, if they were really honest with you, they would tell you that they feel a bit disappointed with you, God. Would you wrap your arms around them and let them know it's okay? Would you wrap your arms around them and let them know you're their father and you don't want to just hear the good? that you want such a relationship with them where they can trust you with even the bad. In Jesus' name, amen. During those three years, as I said earlier, I kept asking God, God, please make sense of this. How does this fit in to your plan for my life? How does the pain that I'm going through fit in? And I'm thankful today to tell you that God answered that prayer very clearly. In fact, uh, Oxford is where I met Jim Sammer, the senior pastor of this church. And because of that, I got to interview here at Calvary Church. And even those eight years of nursing home, I realize now I needed every bit of it to learn the skills to run and the daily operations and oversee the daily operations of, of a large organization such as Calvary. He was preparing me for it. Even those three years of hurt, I came up and I interviewed with the elders and the first time I interviewed, uh, they didn't like me. <laughs> but for some reason they gave me another chance and the second interview I shared with them the hurt I'd been through those three years and how that I'd tore down and set up chairs for three years and that won them over. <laughs> and it helped me be a better pastor today, not a perfect, but a better pastor today. So I'm thankful to God for answering my prayer. But as I also said earlier, my story's trite compared to many of yours. Trite. And my guess is the majority of you will never know exactly how your pain fits in this side of heaven. But can I tell you there's coming a day, and this day's coming soon, when we will stand before God and he will wipe every tear away. And I heard one preacher say, he said, when we get to heaven, we're gonna have, God's gonna answer all our questions. I don't know if that's true, but I do know we won't care. 
when we experience the joys of heaven, when we've rid ourselves of this sinful flesh and our troubles are over, and we spend eternity with our Savior and our loved ones, we won't care. But on this earth, our job is to grow in our intimacy with God. In your notes, on the back of your notes, there is an aid to help you write a letter to God. Most of us are not as talented as King David was. We can't write him a song, but all of us can write him a letter. If this message spoke to you, uh, if this message made you think, wow, I need to get more real with God. I need to get more honest with God. I would encourage you sometime this week, spend some time with God, get alone with God, get more intimate with God by sharing him, sharing with him how you feel, what you want, and what you'll do for him afterwards in terms of praise.